votes. I'll call the second case now, Stay versus the State of Minnesota. Mr. Burrell, you reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Yes, sure. you, you may proceed when you're ready. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Ian Burrell, and I represent the appellant, David Stay. The weekend of the 2016 fishing opener in Malacca, Mr. T Stay punched someone once outside of a bar. The person he punched was about 130 pounds bigger than he was, and was at about a 0.26 blood alcohol content. Tragically and shockingly, that person fell, hit his head, and died. Mr. Stay was convicted of, of first-degree manslaughter, because the district court re removed an element of the crime from the jury's consideration. That, that element was reasonable foreseeability of death or great bodily harm. The district court's decision amounted to directing out that element. In other words, the district court held, if there is a misdemeanor assault and death results, this is automatically per se first degree manslaughter. This is not equitable and is not the correct interpretation of the statute. Mr. Stay should not have been convicted in this way, and a new trial is warranted. And I wanted to start the court out by talking about the recent binding United States Supreme Court decision in United States versus Davis. That decision, issued on June 24th of this year, while this case was pending and while this case was being briefed, uh, clearly lays out that the rule of lenity has to come into play earlier in the decision-making process than this court had previously held. That opinion starts out, the first paragraph, in our constitutional order, a vague law is no law at all. And when Congress passes a vague law, the role of courts under our Constitution is not to fashion a new, clearer law to take its place, but to treat the law as a nullity and invite Congress to try again. This, uh, and the, the court in the United States versus Davis, um, 
the majority applied the rule of lenity to overrule a, a canon of statutory construction. And in doing so, we can contrast it with this court's recent opinions in uh, State v. Thone Savannah, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and State v. Packenyuk, in which this court held that the rule of lenity could only apply after all other canons were exhausted. Counsel, is a vague law one in which, which has a grievous ambiguity? A, a vague law and an ambiguous law, I, I think, mean the same thing. Um, I agree that there has to be some level of vagueness for us to, to, to reach the law as uh, too vague to apply, too ambiguous to apply. But vague and ambiguous uh, mean essentially the same thing. Well, but the Supreme Court in a, quite a line of case law said you apply the rule of lenity when there's a grievous ambiguity. That's is When the court says a vague law is no law at all, aren't they saying there's a grievous ambiguity here? Uh, I don't think... I don't think they are, Your Honor. I, I think you can look at the dissent in United States versus Davis where they say, look, there needs to be a grievous ambiguity for vagueness, for lenity to come into play. And the majority seem to be disagreeing with that, saying this law was sufficiently vague, not entirely vague. If you look at it as a, a weighing act, if there's some slight edge one way, that's enough for the rule of lenity. So you read Davis as overturning the, the line of Supreme Court cases going back into the, say, 1950s that said you apply the rule of lenity only when there's grievous ambiguity. Uh, I do read it that way, Your Honor. I don't think that's necessary for you to reach a, uh, to vacate this conviction, Your Honor. Um, and uh, I think the clearest way to, to look counsel, at... Um, I just want to go right to the text of the of the statute because... Sometimes, you know, we talk about all these, these fancy grammatical names like series qualifier, last antecedent, and so on. But to me, when you're looking at that first line, it, the statute, granted, it's a long, you know, long statute with very little punctuation. But when you look at the first line, it says, violates section 609.222 and causes the death of another. And, um, so right there, it's set out one way of violating the statute. And then you have an or, which we always read as a disjunctive. And then it starts again, causes the death of another. To me, that's, I mean, despite all the rest of it, that's pretty clear that it's talking about two different things. And because it starts up again with causes the death of another, I mean, to me, that's a pretty, that's a clear statute no matter what else follows. Your Honor, I, I, uh, I don't agree with that. I think that there are two, the, the canons of construction in this case, the series qualifier rule and the last antecedent canon, kind of track ways that ordinary people read language, read English grammar. And the, uh, I think the statute is, is, is unambiguous if you apply that the last antecedent canon and the state would prevail. And it's unambiguous if you apply the series qualifier rule and we would prevail. And when, when a person reads, reads a statute, sometimes one or the other might jump out at them, but that doesn't mean that the other, other canon can't, can't apply. The other logical way of reading it can't apply. And that, in this case, would mean that the later qualifiers reach back and apply to, to the first, uh, to violate section 609.224. Um, and if I, I have briefed and I maintain that the statute is, is unambiguous and that we, 
the, the appellant should prevail under the unambiguous reading of the statute. But I understand that four judges have now reached a different reading of the statute. And there is uh, room for, for reasonable people to disagree on how the statute is read. And I think that's where the rule of lenity and the other, possibly the other canons of construction, but certainly the rule of lenity have to come into play. What about the legislative history? I think the legislative history shouldn't be considered for a few reasons. First, the purpose of criminal statutes is to inform ordinary people as to what the statute says, what the law is. And if I don't think it's reasonable, I don't think it's realistically possible for an ordinary person to go back to look at 1995 Senate committee meetings to look at what the legislative to what the legislature intended. And in this case, this is uh, magnified because it's not clear what the legislature intended. The Court of Appeals looked at the legislative history and they did so uh, sua sponte without the uh, appellant or the state urging them to do so. And the legislative history of that Senate committee is problematic. First, just because it's a committee and we don't know what the entire Senate was thinking or why, the, why individual senators made their decision, but more fundamentally because it was based on a misunderstanding of, of the law. That is, the senators seem to think that in this case, other charges wouldn't be possible. So a first degree assault charge wouldn't be possible and a fifth degree manslaughter charge wouldn't be possible. And appellant's position is not that it would be improper for him to be charged with first degree manslaughter, only that if he, if he is charged, each element needs to be proven. That is, it's possible that reasonable, that death or great bodily harm could be reasonably foreseeable from a single punch. But that's a jury question. That's not a question for the judge to decide. And that goes into the other piece that's in um, United States versus Davis and the other Supreme Court decisions that the uh, rule of lenity is in part a proper application of the separation of powers between the, the, the branches of government. That is that the legislature has a responsibility to clearly and unambiguous, unambiguously define what the law is. And when they write vague statutes, they leave that interpretation up to either the courts or to individual prosecutors. Because in essence, a prosecutor in this case is deciding, is it reasonably foreseeable that death would result from a punch? Or possibly, does it even matter if it's reasonably foreseeable that death could result from a punch? And the answer to that, I think, has to be yes. And I'm imagining different hypotheticals in this place, in this, in this case that could apply. And one possible one is, let's say I'm, I'm at the Vikings game next week and I'm, I'm getting into it with a fan from the other team. And I'm, I tell him, I'm gonna wallop you right in the face. And he takes a step back, this is outside out of the stadium, takes a step back, steps onto to a sewer grate, the sewer grate breaks, he falls through and dies. And under the state's construction of the law and the district court's construction of the law, I've committed first degree manslaughter because I assaulted someone by causing, by intending to cause some fear and death resulted. Counsel, it does seem to me that the strongest argument you have is the one that you're, you're, you're sort of indirectly making now, which is that it's just an unduly harsh result for the, in the circumstances here for this to be manslaughter in the first degree. And the state responds by saying that the circumstances of the crime can be taken into in sentencing. 
And so a judge, for example, could depart downwardly because this is not the typical first degree manslaughter um, crime. How do you respond to that? Your Honor, the question, I, neither the state or the appellant have, have uh, appealed the sentence in this case. And the question isn't if someone should be, how someone should be sentenced. And a judge can and of course should take into consideration whether uh, what the individual circumstances of the assault were and what the individual circumstances of the death were. But the question is more fundamental. It's what are the elements of the crime and can they be removed, abstracted out from, uh, from first-degree manslaughter? Um, so it, the statute being, being unduly harsh is something that can be taken into consideration because in addition it reaches the question did the legislature really under really intend to reach this result. And if they did intend to reach this result, I think it magnifies that they need to do so more clearly. That there needs to be a more clear expression for such a uh, significant crime and punishment here for such a relatively minor individual act. And this reaches, uh, this kind of comes to light in this case because the jury acquitted the appellant of first degree assault. And I think that also plays into the harmless error analysis. It's hard, I wanted to push back again against that because in light of the fact that the jury asked a, asked a question that basically is the same question as to why I'm here today. Uh, if you are guilty of, if we find him guilty of count three, which is fifth degree assault, do we have to find him guilty of count one, first degree manslaughter? And the district court uh, referred the jury back to the jury instructions, which essentially said that the answer is yes. Um, and as to whether this is a too harsh of a result or an inequitable result or something that the legislature really intended, I think it's appropriate to go look at the other jurisdictions or the other some of the other states that have uh, assessed this law. And I would refer you back to my uh, my principal brief where we talked about. Um, uh, I think Comer is is the most the case that discusses it the most fulsomely. And whether you call this the, the canon, uh, the abrogation of common law canon, which is that there needs to be a clear and unambiguous um, intent for the legislature to, in particular, take away elements of crimes, but also abrogate common laws in, in, in other ways, or whether you take it as uh, an expression of kind of the law of the country generally, I think either way that this is appropriate for the court to consider. And I wanted to also discuss that the uh, kind of what, what it means that the Minnesota practice series and before you get into the Minnesota practice series, I want to ask you one other statutory interpretation question. It's an unusual statute in the sense that the phrase, there's a single phrase that's used one after another, causes the death of another or causes the death of another. What do you make of that, that dual use of the phrase causes the death of an, another separated by the word or? Um, Your Honor, frankly, this, the statute is, is very difficult to parse. Uh, I, I, I don't know what, what it, that is supposed to mean entirely. Um, the, the best way I can interpret it is that uh, that it's 
either someone causes an assault, commits an assault and causes a death, or commits a, mis a misdemeanor, gross misdemeanor, and causes a death with reasonably with reasonable foreseeability for either portion. And murder in the first or second degree was not committed thereby for either portion. And the murder in the first or second degree was not committed thereby is also interesting and troubling to me because as I understand it, the state's position in this case is if there's an assault and someone dies, that's a fifth degree assault because an assault was committed. That's a first degree assault, which is a felony assault because an assault was committed and uh, great bodily harm was suffered. That's first degree manslaughter because a misdemeanor assault was committed and a death resulted. And that's felony murder because a first degree assault was committed and a death resulted, which means I don't know how there can be a fifth degree assault that causes the death of another where necessarily a murder in a second degree was not committed. Well, doesn't, doesn't the fact that causes the death of another is used twice and separated by the word or suggest there's a first clause up to the word or, and then there's a second clause after the word or? Your Honor, I think that, I don't think so. I think that would be inconsistent with the way that the legislature laid out the other subparts of the statute, which, I, which each relay one way that a person can commit first degree manslaughter. So this is subpart two, and essentially subparts one, three, four, and five each say that there's one way to commit manslaughter. So I- Yeah, but, but one, three, four, and five simply use the phrase causes the death of another once. They don't use it twice. Uh, Your Honor, I, I agree that this is the way this, the, the statute is written, and, and I am, I'm, I'm struggling to parse through the language of the statute. And I, I don't know why it's written this way, but I don't think it's clear. And the Court of Appeals said this, that the statute is, is awkward, but not ambiguous. But even saying that a statute is awkward in a situation like this seems to me to be um, a little bit troubling because awkward statutes should be looked at very closely. And the district court struggled deeply over how to, how to assess the statute, changing its mind multiple times. And I think here it is appropriate to talk too about the Minnesota practice series, which has been amended repeated, repeatedly since 1996, 23 years ago, and still lays out that assault plus death still requires a reasonably, reasonable foreseeability to reach manslaughter. And even the jury instruction guide elements, the crim jig elements, seem to reach that result, although those are not entirely clear too. So it seems like at best, this is a statute where no one really knows what it says. And at that point, I think that it's appropriate to look to uh, the rule of lenity or to the other canons of statutory construction that lead to the same result, which is that the law has to be, the conviction has to be reversed and the law has to be more clearly written. I think, Your Honor, a new, a new trial is what we're asking for here. And I think that that would be the fair and equitable result for appellant because he should have a proper trial with with um, with all the elements of the crime submitted to the jury. But it's also a fair and equitable equitable result for the state because they maintain that this can be proven in this case, that reasonable foreseeability can be proven in this case. And I don't entirely agree with them that this can be proven, but Your Honor, that's why we have juries is to decide all of the elements of each of each charge. Um, Counsel, can you point to something in Davis where the court is saying vagueness equals 
grievous vagueness equals ambiguity, which triggers the rule of lenity. Well, what the court says in the holding is that a vague law is no law at all. And when we're presented with a vague law, the role of the courts is to treat it as a nullity and try again, is to tell Congress to treat try again. They don't say uh, overly vague law is a nullity. They, there's not a qualifier of how vague the law is. So, Well, here's what I'm asking. You're essentially saying that the Supreme Court overruled a bunch of its precedent on grievous ambiguity as the test for rule of the application of the rule of lenity. Can you point me to something in the Davis opinion that says that? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I'm not sure I understood your question. Could I? Well, the, the, we can agree, I think, that the U.S. Supreme Court says, previously said, you apply the rule of lenity when you've exhausted the other canons, it's the last resort, and there's still a grievous ambiguity. Do we agree on that? Uh, Your Honor, I don't know that I can entirely agree on that. The Supreme Court has at times said basically those exact words, but at other times they've applied the rule of lenity to statutes that are not as grievously ambiguous. And I think that the this, this uh, kind of problem was laid out fairly well in Justice Anderson's concurrence in State v. Thone Savannah, if I'm pronouncing that, that case correctly, where the the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has not been altogether very consistent in saying what, when the rule of lenity applies. And well, let me ask the question another another way. Then, would you say that Davis has essentially overruled Thonsavan and the Nelson case, which was its predecessor on the rule of lenity? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I think the U.S. v. Davis did overrule Thonsavan. Okay. Thank you. Um, as to how how vague a statute needs to be or how ambiguous a statute needs to be for the rule of lenity to override all other considerations. And I think in Davis, it's, it's, it's fair to say that the U.S. Supreme Court compares the rule of lenity with the uh, canon of constitutional avoidance, and it says the rule of lenity trumps the canon of constitutional avoidance. And whether, how much ambiguity needs to be present there for, for that to apply, I think is, is uh, it's not really a, a, quant, a question of how much ambiguity exists. It's a question of, is there ambiguity? Is there vagueness? And if so, the way I read Davis is that that trumps the other canons, that you don't reach the other canons. And um, the, I do think U.S. v. Davis is binding precedent because it does discuss the due process. It's based on the, the due process clause of the United States Constitution, and this court could take a more expansive view of due process under Minnesota law, but it couldn't take a less expansive view of due process. And because the rule of lenity is a rule that protects uh, criminal defendants and criminal appellants, um, it's one that would need to be, Davis would set the floor, and you, this court could go further, um, but couldn't go less far. And in uh, Thone Savan, um, Justice Anderson's concurrence laid out uh, essentially four levels of, of at which the rule of lenity could apply. And the first, the, it, so it could apply, the first level was before other canons. The second level was, um, and if I remember correctly, I believe this is correctly, uh, 
after some canons, but before legislative history, after some canons and after legislative history, or after all canons. And U.S. v. Davis, I think, settled that question and said it applies before other canons. So that's, that's why I think it has to be the focus of this case. I think, and then, you, and then we look at, is the statute ambiguous? And to me, the statute has to be ambiguous because the proof is in the pudding. We don't, we're looking at the statute and we've looked at it for 23 years and people don't, don't come to a conclusion on what it means. The district court has to change its mind on, as to what it means and then reaches a conclusion that is uh, procedurally improper on, on how you assess statutes. The district court said it was unambiguous and we know it's unambiguous because we look at the canons and the canons show it's unambiguous. Um, the Court of Appeals looks at it and says it's awkward but unambiguous. And I think this is just not, the due process clause and due process requires more. It requires ordinary people to be able to look at a statute and see what it means. Not someone with a PhD in English, not someone who can go back and look at the legislative history. Assuming this is what the legislator, legislature intended to do, and I don't think that's clear from um, the, the senatorial record, then they need to do it more clearly. Their, their legislative intent can't trump the plain language of the statute, and that's essentially what the... the um, so basically you're arguing any ambiguous criminal statute should be thrown out. That's, that's, what the, I, that's the implication of your argument. That is the implication of my argument. I think that's a necessary outreach of Davis, although again, I don't think you have to reach that decision uh, for, for appellant to win. Um, I think you can, you can vacate this conviction either by deciding that the statute is, is unambiguous and reads in favor of appellant, or the statute is ambiguous and the rule of lenity applies, or the statute is ambiguous and the canons in general weigh more heavily towards the appellant than towards the state. Um, I think the th that, that last way to write your opinion would be difficult because U.S. v. Davis has to be addressed. It's, it's just kind of the elephant in the room. And uh, it, it would have been um, fortunate if it was decided a couple months earlier so we could have, could have briefed it in the principal briefs. But it's, in another way, it's, it's fortunate that we can, that this court can address this issue so uh, contemporaneously to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision and can clarify two areas of the law. That is, this unsettled nature of the rule of lenity that's applied for dozens of years at least, and um, the first degree manslaughter statute. And both of these are fundamental areas of the statute, uh, fundamental areas of, of criminal law. I, I think one of the reasons that it's difficult to answer your, your, your questions earlier, Justice Little Hog, is, is that the courts have been, the U.S. Supreme Court has not had a single clear application of the rule of lenity. And this court, it seems to me, over the years has been struggling to me, kind of mirror and reflect what the U.S. Supreme Court says. Um, but U.S. v. Davis seems to me to settle that, settle that question, and I don't, I don't see any other way to, to address the, the case without discussing the rule of lenity, because I just don't think the statute can unambiguously read in favor of, of the state. I think, if it un, I think if it unambiguously read in favor of the state, I wouldn't be here today, and I wouldn't have 
the Minnesota practice series to point to. I wouldn't have the crim jigs to point to. The Court of Appeals wouldn't have talked about how awkward the statute was. I don't think any of those, any of those apply. And talking about the Minnesota practice series again, uh, this court has looked at the Minnesota practice series con fairly consistently as a proper application of what the law is. And this court of, is of course not bound to follow the judges uh, McCarr and Nordby. Um, but it's, it's a trusted source of, of what the law, of what the law is. And to the extent that, um, to the extent that they are incorrect, if they are incorrect, then it seems to me to be, to weigh even more heavily as to, we don't know, an ordinary person couldn't know what the law is because if the judges are wrong, then the lawyers are gonna be frequently wrong and district courts are gonna be frequently wrong. But we expect ordinary people to be able to, to um, reflect that, uh, to be able to understand that. Um, Your honors, I'm, uh, I'm I'm running low on time here, and I'm thinking uh, this might be a good good place to um, uh, stop and let the let the state um, discuss some of the concerns in this law. Um, I want to close this this art this uh, portion by talking about again. Davis says that vague laws have to be stricken down. Not vague laws can be stricken down unless they're kind of clear. Not vague laws. Vague laws can be stricken down unless we can figure out that the legislature meant this. That's not what USB Davis says, and USB Davis is is the law, and it's a proper application of these principles. So, unless your honors have further questions, thank you, counsel. You have five minutes for rebuttal, Mr. Stockmeyer. Good morning, Your Honors, Council, and may it please the court, my name is Ed Stockmeyer. I'm an Assistant Attorney General appearing this morning on behalf of the state of Minnesota. When the state charges a defendant with first degree manslaughter in violation of Minnesota statute section 60920 subpart two and alleges that the predicate offense was a fifth degree assault, a proper conviction requires proof of two elements. First, that the defendant committed a simple assault and second, that that simple assault caused another's death. The offense does not have any other elements and appellant's proposal that the state must also prove that death or great bodily harm was reasonably foreseeable is inconsistent with the plain ordinary meaning of the statutory text. Do you agree, counsel, that if we were to reach the ambiguity issue that Davis has overruled uh, our decision in Thonsavanagh? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Um, Davis is a situation where you had an, uh, everybody agreed on unambiguously unconstitutionally vague statute. The categorical rule that the courts had applied in DeMaia and Johnson, 
That was clear from the face of the statute because these residual clauses refer to the nature of the crime itself. And so everybody agreed that it was unconstitutional. And the question was, what is the remedy that this court is going to apply for an unconstitutional statute, an unambiguously unconstitutional statute? The court compared uh, the vagueness doctrine to the rule of lenity. The, rule, the discussion of the rule of lenity uh, constituted about a paragraph in the opinion, but the court did not apply the rule of lenity. It was comparing sort of uh, the constitutional foundations of the two doctrines, and what the court held is that when we have an unambiguously unconstitutional statute, uh, the government, in, in a criminal case, the government cannot prevail by asking the court to rewrite the statute. We can't apply constitutional avoidance when the statute is unambiguously unconstitutional. That was the holding. Lenity did not apply. So I just disagree that Davis uh, is at all at issue in this case. And, and really, I think the focus on Davis represents a little bit of a shift in the argument. The parties all along have been arguing over competing arguments about what this text actually means. Counsel, can I just go back um, in terms of the elements that the state has to prove? You also have to prove that murder in the first or second degree was not committed, right? I, dis I disagree, Your Honor. Um, I, and I would direct this court to its recent decision in State versus Hall, which talked about these negative clauses in statutes. And this court held that when one of these negative clauses merely distinguishes one form of criminal conduct from another, that's sort of just general guidance about the scope of the statute. It is not an element. So that is not something that the state has to prove. And I would, I would point out that that element has never been part of the jigs, wasn't given as an element in this case. Um, and, and the state's position is it is not an element of the offense. I suppose in this case, though, we don't have to decide that. No, I, I mean, in, in terms of just interpreting the whole statute, it, it might well come into consideration, but it's not relevant to the party's dispute, I don't think. So, so um, I'm wondering about the absurd result argument, though. Um, and opposing counsel had a hypothetical about a football game today, and in the briefing there's a hypothetical about spitting. I mean, isn't there, don't you leave room for some um, potential of a harsh result if we adopt your reading of the statute? Um, first of all, I don't think it's overly harsh because this misdemeanor manslaughter is punished in exactly the same way as first degree assault. So if there's an assault that results in great bodily harm or there's fear of great bodily harm, in terms of sentencing, the, the punishment to the defendant, it's the same as first-degree manslaughter. So uh, the premise I, I, I take issue with in terms of an, an unjust result. But if there are concerns about that, there are a number of protections built in to the assault statutes, namely that the state has to prove uh, causation, that the defendant caused another's death. So we might have fights in some cases about proximate cause there. That's one protection. Uh, and the state would also have to prove that the Defendant's Act inflicted the harm. That's built into the assault statutes. So uh, I think there are other protections there if this court is concerned about overly just results. So to, in response to the Chief Justice's question, you said suggested causes means proximate cause. Doesn't it mean direct cause? Your, Your Honor, uh, this court has always held in the homicide statutes that cause refers to proximate causation. Hmm. 
Okay. Um, and and I, I just briefed this for another case, so I, I, I'm a little familiar with it, and I believe I even read a case that referred to the first-degree manslaughter. I don't know the case off the top of my head. but um, And doesn't approximate cause turn on foreseeability? Uh, the test that this court has always announced in terms of proximate causation with respect to homicide statutes in this state looks at uh, substantial factor causation. The civil cases do discuss uh, foreseeability, but that is generally not discussed in the criminal cases referring to the homicide. So it's proximate cause, which means a different thing than it does in civil law. It, you're... Your Honor, I'm, I'm, I'm on a little bit of shaky ground because this is an issue that uh, is completely unbriefed, but uh, it's my understanding that juries are generally not even given a definition of causation, and if they are, it's usually about proximate cause alone, not about foreseeability. Um, Counsel, I want to just ask you one other question about the legislative history. If we were to conclude there's an ambiguity, you urge the court not to look to legislative history because you say... Um, that relying on legislative history risks creating confusion in the law. I'm just quoting your brief now. What's the confusion that we're risking? And, and to be clear, I, I'm not asking this court to ignore what occurred. You know, history is there. That's what occurred. The state's concern is that if the ground of decision in this case is that, look, back then the legislature was told there's a loop in the law or a gap in the law. I think that if that was the ground of the decision in this case, that might create some confusion in the application of second degree felony murder when the defendant has assaulted somebody because that's an alternate uh, basis for a charge. If, a, if an assault results in death, the state can charge that defendant with second-degree murder. So that, that's my only caution. I don't want this court to ignore history, but I do have concern if that's the sole ground for the decision that the only purpose that this serves was to fill a gap in the law that previously existed. Um, what I think this court can do, if it finds the statutes are ambiguous, is it can look at not legislative history, but statutory history. What is just the sequence of how this statute was amended? And what are the inferences we can draw about legislative intent from the fact of the 1996 amendment when, this, when the legislature added the fifth degree assault clause? The, I think the only inference that one can draw from the fact of that uh, statutory history is that there is that the legislature did not intend for there to be a requirement for of proof of reasonable foreseeability in assault cases and that's for the simple fact that these assault cases had fallen within the scope of the misdemeanor offense clause before that 1996 amendment but i would like to turn back now to the actual text of the statute because that's our primary argument that this statute is unambiguous and i specifically want to direct this court to two textual indicia of um, ordinary meaning. First, the disjunctive separating the fifth degree assault clause from the misdemeanor offense clause, and second, the, surpl the surplusage canon. Um, with respect to the disjunctive, again, the word or separates the two operative clauses here, and when the word or separates two parts of a statute, we tend to read those as two distinct categories. Appellant's reading ignores the disjunctive because he collapses the fifth degree assault clause and the misdemeanor assault clause into a single unit. 
encompassing misdemeanor manslaughter. And just to illustrate that fact about appellant's interpretation, I refer this court to page 14 of his reply brief, where he states that his interpretation, quote, describes one way to commit the offense. He goes on to describe the state's interpretation as describing, quote, two entirely different classes. That is exactly why the state's interpretation is the more is the more plain, more ordinary interpretation of the statute. By limiting the reach of the reasonable foreseeability requirement to the misdemeanor offense clause, um, the state's interpretation separates the misdemeanor offense clause into its own category of conduct, which is independent of the fifth degree assault clause. So what do you, what's your response to the argument made by the appellant <clears throat> as it relates to the average person being able to understand the statute and going to legislative history and a PhD in English? Certainly, Your Honor. Um, first of all, as, as a matter of precedent, this court applies the rules of grammar to interpret statutes. That's sort of sta a standard fare for statutory interpretation. But I think these canons of statutory interpretation, the surplusage canon, the last antecedent rule, the series qualifier rule, they, the way I think about them is they are not prescriptive rules where when we read or hear language, we're sort of rotely, as we go along, applying these rules that we know about. Rather, these rules describe how people tend to ordin how people ordinarily tend to understand the English language. So, for example, people tend to read a statute that or any sentence that has the word "or" as separating the two terms into different classes. People tend to read statutes uh, so that there or any sentence so that there isn't just completely meaningless language. They are descriptive, not prescriptive. So I think there's just a sort of maybe a fundamental disconnect when litigants argue, well, these aren't the types of things that your average man on the street is thinking about. I agree with that, but they describe the way we, we understand language. Uh, the second point I want to make about the statutory text is that uh, the surplusage canon dictates that no phrase in a statute should be interpreted as void or insignificant. Fifth degree assault is a misdemeanor that is covered by the misdemeanor offense clause. So the only way to ensure that the fifth degree assault clause has any independent meaning is to interpret it as requiring proof of different elements than are required under the misdemeanor offense clause, excluding the reasonable foreseeability requirement from assault, case, from assault cases is the only way uh, only textual way for achieving that result. It's the only textual basis for avoiding surplusage. Um, Can fifth-degree assault be a felony? Fifth-degree assault can often be a felony, Your Honor. For example, if you have just a regular first-degree assault case, great bodily harm, that Is that the difference then? So it's not a misdemeanor, it's a felony. Therefore, it, there's a difference. It could be, in the abstract. It could be, but if you have a first degree assault, let's just say the defendant doesn't die. That defendant has, in the abstract, let's take it away from a jury's findings, that defendant has theoretically committed first degree assault, he's also committed third degree assault, and he's committed first, uh, fifth degree assault. That's because great bodily harm encompasses substantial bodily harm and bodily harm. When we look at the specifics of a particular prosecution, the question is, uh, 
a person has not committed a first-degree assault unless the jury finds that he has. So here, the, the defendant committed a misdemeanor assault because that was the jury's finding. Um, I guess the, the, the last point I would like to make, and this also pertains to the surplusage canon, um, is that the fifth-degree assault clause is really the heart of this case. That's the language that uh, the defendant was, or the appellant was charged under. And so I think it's telling that nowhere in appellant's uh, briefing to this court, briefing to the Court of Appeals, has he articulated an actual interpretation of what those elements are. What are the elements of this offense? Um, I think that's telling because it suggests that that language actually doesn't do any work of its own. Under appellant's interpretation, the fifth degree assault clause is irreducibly redundant. It's just throwaway language. And if that's the result of his interpretation, it is not the plain meaning of the statute. This court has time and again held that where you have two readings, one would, would result in surplusage and the other clearly would not. The more natural plain reading is the one that avoids surplusage. Um, and unless this court has any further questions, I'll forego the remainder of my time and simply ask this court to affirm uh, the appellant's conviction. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Burrow, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I want to start by talking about uh, where, where opposing counsel left off, which is that I haven't clearly articulated the elements of, of first-degree manslaughter when the underlying crime is fifth-degree assault. And in my principal brief on page 14, I referred to the crim jigs, and the crim jigs elements section accurately describes the elements, which is that first, the death must be proven. Second, the defendant caused the death. Third, the death was caused by committing either an assault in the fifth degree or in the crime of blank. Fourth, with reasonable foreseeability. And fifth, in whatever county. I think that is what the elements are, and that's, that's consistent with, with my argument. Um, I next wanted to say that even under the government's articulation of the law, it's unclear what the outcome will be if there's a punch and someone dies. I still don't know, is that a fifth degree assault? Is that a first degree assault? Is that second degree murder? Is that first degree manslaughter? Is that all of those? Is that some of those? Can, can a person be committed or convicted of both second degree murder and first degree manslaughter from a punch where someone dies? It didn't come up in our case because there was an acquittal on the first degree assault and the murder charge was dismissed before trial. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's very troubling that the, the law is so unclear even under the government's articulation. Um, talking again about lenity and Davis, uh, I agree that the case has been about, has been mostly about these competing interpretations and the competing arguments as to what the statute means. But if there's one reading of the statute that I think is correct that says it requires foreseeability, and there's one that the state thinks is correct that says it does not, the question is, is, is the statute ambiguous given those two readings of the statute? Counsel, would you agree that in Davis the Supreme Court did not expressly apply the rule of lenity? I would not agree with that, Your Honor. 
I think in Davis, the Supreme Court did ex expressly apply the rule of lenity. And I'd, I'd point the court towards, uh, I think this is most clearly articulated in page 2351 in the dissent, where the dissent says, first, the court concludes that the canon, that the constitutional avoidance canon must yeah, but usually opinions are best read by reading the opinion rather than what the dissent says about the majority opinion. Can you point me to anywhere in the majority opinion where the court applies the rule of lenity and in, the, the best I've been able to come up with is the paragraph immediately before Roman numeral four where they say uh, not following the rule of constitutional avoidance or following the rule of constitutional avoidance is actually consistent with the principles behind the rule of lenity. I, I think that that paragraph is probably the clearest articulation, but it is, is I think directly applying the rule of lenity that it discusses what the rule is, the, the basis behind the rule. And I think the uses of the rule to reach the decision in the case. And I, I, I do think the dissent is, is important to look at because it does say the court concludes the canon of con the constitutional avoidance canon must yield to the rule of lenity. I think that that's, that is an accurate description of the majority opinion and an accurate description of the law. Um, I, I, I think this, uh, the, the foreseeability, the, the relationship between foreseeability and proximate cause is an important one. Um, I don't really see the, the argument as to why uh, proximate cause has to be proven, but reasonable foreseeability does not. To me, that seems legally inconsistent. Um, I think if foreseeability is a part of proximate cause or proximate cause is a part of foreseeability and they both need to be proven and that's the element saying that reasonable foreseeability must be proven is a part of saying is it can be a part of causation. Um, Your Honor, all, all of this, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, kind of balls that are up in the air here. And I think the statute could have been written more clearly in one of dozens of ways. There are ways the, the legislature could have written the statute in which we would clearly prevail. And there are ways the, stat, the legislature could have written the statute in which we would clearly not prevail. And the way that that, the outcome of that to me seems to be that, especially in light of U.S. v. Davis, but even before U.S. v. Davis, that the judgment has to be vacated and a new trial has to be given. So unless your honors have anything further. Thank you, counsel. Thanks Thank to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.